and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, then to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. I'd invite you to take a seat and bow with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a joy to gather with other saints this morning and worship the forever living Christ, the one who died and who reigns now and will one day reign upon the earth. God, we thank you for your word. We recognize this morning that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. God, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Lord, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Your word is much more desirable than fine gold, Lord. And therefore we pray that you would cause us to long for your word so that we may grow in respect by it. Lord, we desire to live by your word. We recognize that every word that proceeds forth from your mouth, we are meant to live upon, and we ask that you'd help us to do so. And we recall that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, now as we look into your word, would you do that work? Would you equip us for every good work? And, Lord, as we look into Revelation chapter 2, I ask that you draw out our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He is, he is coming, and may we long for his return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I'd like to invite you to turn to, to the book of Revelation, if you're not there, chapter 2. 
I begin by telling you about today in present-day Turkey, in the city of Izmir, about it's a population of about 4.3 million. And if you were to get into a car and head, head south on the highway about 50 miles, you'd come to a little village town by the name of Selçuk. And Selçuk boasts a population of about 30,000 people, rather small. And this city was once the resting ground of a- ancient Ephesus, Selçuk. And it used to have a population of 300,000, today only 30,000. And at one point, about 100 years before the time of Christ, this city, Ephesus, was known as the landing place of Asia Minor, or present-day Turkey. And there, at the mouth of the Chiaster River, there was sort of a highway into ancient Asia Minor. Goods and trade opportunities were brought into Asia Minor through this major seaport. And Ephesus was like the first stop on that highway, or the last stop if you were coming out of Turkey. And uh, this, this seaport was quite busy, a lot of traffic, a lot of commerce, but there was a massive problem in Ephesus. There was a massive problem in the industry, and that was very simply silt. You see, silt from the surrounding mountains was washing down and filling the harbor. Even before the time of Christ, this was a problem, and it and continued into the time of the apostles. And uh, where ancient Ephesus sits today, there's actually... No more harbor. It's been completely filled in by the silt there. Where there used to be large seaport ships, there's now grape vineyards. You see, the ancient folly of mankind was deforestation. And they completely took out the trees and the timber, often in pursuit of charcoal, and, and, they, and it deforested the land, and the silt washed down and filled up the harbor. harbor. And so now Ephesus sits seven miles from coastal waters, completely silted in. And in time, this struggle uh, with the silt, the silt won, despite many ancient efforts, engineering efforts. And in the later years of the Apostle John, uh, the Ephesian harbor uh, was filling with silt, but also the Ephesian church was also facing extinction in a similar way, obviously not by silt, but they had a similar threat that came against them, listen to the words of Christ to this ancient church in verse 6. He says there, Unless you repent, I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your lampstand out of its place. I mean, this is the city of Ephesus. And we wonder what, what, what happened to warrant such a rebuke from our Lord Jesus. And just for a moment, recall with me the history of this city. And the, and the Christian work in Ephesus. You see, the, the history of Christianity began in Ephesus around AD 50, largely through the efforts, most likely, of Priscilla and Aquila, which we learn about in Acts 18. And Paul probably came about two years later and set up a ministry there. And we know that Paul would stay for three years in Ephesus ministering to the people. About... Yeah, during this Ephesian ministry, we know Paul wrote letters, like mainly like 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus. We also know that Paul established a training center, training most likely young men for gospel work. It was called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. Paul would meet there midday during the hot hours of the day to lecture and to train men. You can read about this in Acts 19. And we know from, from his efforts at training men, the gospel spread, spread through, 
the surrounding regions. In Acts 19.10, it says, All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord because of Paul's efforts there. And likely, we think that other churches were planted because of Paul's Ephesian ministry. Most likely, churches like Colossae, Hierapolis, churches like Laodicea probably came out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, So influential was Paul's ministry there that it was overturning some of the economy and commerce of the day. You see, the the Silversmiths League actually tried to throw Paul out, if you recall. You see that all those who were fashioning idols for the great temple of Artemis, uh, they were losing money because of Paul's work as the gospel was taking root there in Ephesus. And by ministering in Ephesus, Paul was assaulting a stronghold of religion, a stronghold of pagan religion that surrounded this temple, the temple of Artemis, a, a fertility goddess of the ancient Greeks and Romans. You see, centuries before Alexander the Great had invested fortunes in this temple, it was a beautiful structure. It was actually known as one of the, ancient, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And as the harbor was filling with silt, uh, this temple was a regional attraction. It was sort of a tourist attraction to keep the city going, to keep the economy going, people would come in to be a part of the religious festivities and pagan practices that were happening there in those days. But as I said, Christianity was taking a root there in that city and the, the wealth of those who were selling the idols was being threatened. And when Paul left, he would leave behind Timothy to continue ministering to that church there in Ephesus. And in Acts 20, Paul would return and minister again to those Ephesian elders, giving them a warning about what what was to come, imploring them to watch out against strange doctrines that would surely infiltrate the church. After After Paul left, later John would come and minister in Ephesus, the Apostle John. John was known as the abiding apostolic voice who outlived long past the other apostles, John lived and ministered there in Ephesus. And sometime around AD 95, we know that John was sentenced or exiled to the island of Patmos. It was sort of a Roman penal colony where people were sent to work uh, to be under prison sentence. And we know that John, in his old age, would went there uh, under the reign of Dominican, an ancient Roman emperor, And it's there on Patmos that John received this revelation, uh, this revelation of what we might call the Apocalypse, the final book of our Bibles, the book of Revelation. And as you know, chapters 2 and 3 contain seven letters addressed to seven churches. And this morning, we're going to look at the first letter, the letter to Ephesus, an inspired letter from our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know of all these seven churches were under the, the ministry of the Apostle John. John was influential in these churches and in these cities. And we also know that these seven churches and the problems that they faced are similar to the, to the problems that we face today in our churches. So there's much that we can learn from these, from these churches. And each of these seven churches have a unique, the letters to those seven churches have a unique introduction. In the introduction, Jesus recalls the vision from chapter 1 that we just read And he emphasizes a few things. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. There it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
the one who walks among his seven golden lampstands says this. You see, the emphasis in 2 verse 1 is upon the actions of holding and walking. Jesus identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars. And according to chapter 1 verse 20, we know that the seven stars are referring to the seven angels or the seven messengers for each of these churches. And Jesus is holding those stars. And we know that those, those messengers or those angels represent the church. Jesus can speak to those angels and it will represent the entire church. So Jesus is holding the seven stars and he's a walking in the midst of the lampstands. So somehow this is communicating Jesus evaluating, walking through, scrutinizing these churches. He's holding them in, in his hand. He's sovereign over them. And he's also evaluating them. He's constantly evaluating. The, the action is he's walking in their midst, like a shepherd tending his sheep, inspecting them. That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 1. The, the picture, this is Christ in leadership of his churches. And we can trust that how he represented himself here in chapter 2 is how he, repre- how he is today. It's the same Christ. As the one who's sovereign over his church, he's evaluating everything in his church, which is important for us to note. Jesus cares that everything in our churches, every ministry, every area is pleasing to him. It will not do for just some areas of our church to be pleasing to him. Every area must be pleasing to him, as we'll see in these letters. And the threat is, if these churches won't come under his leadership, he will remove the lampstand. He will close the church down. He will remove the light of the gospel from that place. That, that could mean that literally the church would close its doors. The people would go elsewhere. There'd be no more church. Or it might just mean that the gospel would be lost there and there'd be no more lights coming out of that church. Heretical doctrine would be taught and it would be a dead church that no longer exists. And as I've been studying these letters, I'm just growing in a conviction that we need to know these letters. We need to understand what Jesus had said here, and we need to heed this message. You see, Jesus offers often both praise and critique in these churches, both sort of a, a commendation and condemnation. And I believe that's likely the case. He would evaluate us. He would evaluate our churches. And there might be some things that he'd be pleased with and other things that he would ask us to change. And so we need to evaluate our churches corporately in light of these letters and also us as individuals. thinking about, is every area of our life pleasing to him? Is it honoring to him? If we want to have Christ honoring God-pleasing lives as individuals and corporately as churches, I think we need to heed these messages. So this morning we'll look at this first letter. So please look with me in your Bible again at verse 1, and I'll read through verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put them to the test who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent 
and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this morning, just to sort of organize our time, I'm just going to pick through five aspects of Jesus' evaluative critique of the church of Ephesus. So five aspects of Jesus' evaluative critique of the church of Ephesus. And the first is this, noteworthy commendations. Noteworthy commendations in verses 2 and 3. He starts there, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. You see, things in Ephesus weren't all bad. Christ praises these church, these, this church for some wonderful qualities. Christ tells them that he knows their deeds. He knows their toil and their perseverance. Christ was fully aware of all this church had endured, all that they had gone through. And Jesus calls attention to their works. This word works likely referring to their, the general course of life, their moral conduct. He praises them for it. And the Ephesian church was also engaged in slavish toil. They were working to the point of exhaustion for Christ. And also they endured. The lasting patience was a characteristic of the church. They were enduring. They were working hard for Christ to the point of exhaustion. Additionally, he praised them for refusing to tolerate evil men. The church refused and was incapable of putting up with evil men in their midst. Uh, Likely, this means the church actively practiced church discipline. Paul told the church of Corinth in chapter 5, remove the wicked man from among you. And likely, this church was practicing that. They They were diligently following the Lord in those regards. Furthermore, when someone claimed to have apostolic authority in the church, the church tested them. And this is exactly what the apostles instructed them to do. Recall with me 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully holding fast to that which is good. Additionally, some 30 years before when the Apostle Paul was there speaking to those Ephesian elders, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul warned them, and the church in Ephesus heeded this warning. They paid attention They listened and they protected the church from false teachers. Those who claimed to be apostles and indeed were not, verse 2 says, they were found to be false. Christ praises them for this. And they had perseverance. The church weathered all these difficulties, all these challenges brought from without and from within. And Christ applauded them for all these things. Well done. He applauded them for their moral uprightness, for their enduring efforts, and for their lasting patience. And so these are noteworthy commendations. And yet, look at the next word, starting in verse 4. But, but I have this against you, Jesus says. This is, 
the second aspect of this letter that I'd like us to see. This is a, a crushing indictment. I'm calling this a crushing indictment. Christ has something against the church. Something that Christ disapproved of. And frankly, this is a terrible place to be. Hearing this, hearing Christ say, I have something against you. He says, you have left your first love. You have left your love, your first love. And Jesus puts this in stark terms. Your love is gone. The language communicates that their initial love is now absent. Something is altogether missing from the church. You might think this is the second generation of this church in Ephesus. Times were changing. And now, what was first there among those first members who were zealous for the Lord, who were turning to Christ, probably very evangelistic with great zeal, now their first love was gone. We ask, well, what, what is this first love? What is that first love? I think the obvious answer here is love for Christ, or love for God, we might say. I mean, when Jesus himself was questioned about what the greatest commandment in the law was, Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Jesus said. So love for God or love for Christ is the Christian's first priority. And I would say a basic definition of a Christian is simply one who loves Christ. A Christian is a person that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think I could say with certainty that if you're listening to me today and you do not love Christ, if there's no affection in your heart for Christ, then you are not a Christian. Christians love Christ. I mean, Jesus said this in John chapter 8 when he was confronting the failed and contrived fake religion of the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. But they didn't. And therefore, God was not their father. You cannot be a born-again child of God or a born-again son of God if you do not have love for God the Son. You must love them. And imagine this letter being read in this Ephesian congregation for the first time. In hearing these words, would not your heart just be rent hearing Christ say, there's no love for me, you don't love me. I'd have to believe that these Christians were just undone. Uh, could Christ have given any worse critique to this church, any worse condemnation? A Christian is someone who loves Christ. I mean, maybe you've had the experience like I have where you've, you've been sharing Christ with someone. Now, you've been explaining the dynamics of the gospel, explaining to them who Jesus Christ was, explaining that he lived a sinless life. He was perfect in every way. And yet at the end of his life, he was persecuted and crushed. And God the Father placed upon Christ all the sins of us. And he punished Christ in our place. As Isaiah said, God was pleased to crush him. But you just have this, there's this blank stare on their face. And they might say something like, yeah, yeah, I believe all that. Oh, yeah, that's all review for me. I, I get that. I believe those things for kids. But there's just no, no expression, no, nothing. There's just a bland. And in your heart, you're going, well, if you love this Christ and you, and you believe this gospel, shouldn't it change your life? Shouldn't it somehow make you different? You see, love for Christ is meant to change us. This is what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Recall verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. It constricts us. It compels us. 
You see, having concluded this, Paul says that one died for all, therefore all died. So they no longer live for themselves, but they live for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, love for Christ evidences itself in a life lived for Christ. And this leads us to our next aspect of this letter, our third aspect. And it's just a a call to remember and repent. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, Therefore remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So in light of the severe indictment that Jesus just identified, he now gives a double-pronged call to action. It's simply remember and repent. Remember, literally keep on remembering. Call to mind the things you used to do. Call to mind. Keep remembering your former days and your former condition. Remember when you first came to Christ. Remember the love in your heart for Christ when you first understood the gospel. You see, this church had lost its bearings and it needed to regain them. Repent. Remember and repent. This is calling for a decisive change in attitude that results in a change in action. Uh, Simply, maybe we could define it as repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in life. A change in heart that leads to a change in life. And Jesus says, remember, repent, do the deeds you did at first. Notice here that love for Christ is inescapably linked to obedience. Remember, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Remember John's word in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Or in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In essence, if there's no life change, if there's no obedience to Christ, don't call me Lord. Because truly loving Christ and coming under the Lordship of Christ means that you're going to submit to his word and his will. And so despite this church's zeal for moral conduct and doctrinal purity, their obedience had slipped in some other areas. And likely their motives had changed. There was now discernment but no devotion. And that's a scary place to be. There was discernment without devotion. And isn't it a shame how one can have such love for seeking out theological error, or finding theological compromise, and yet in other areas that have no love for Christ? I think we need both. We need doctrine, discernment, and devotion. I once was sitting in church, a few rows from a man who, who runs a well-known uh, online discernment ministry. And as we were singing congregationally together as a church, I looked over him and he had a rather bland look on his face. And I don't know what was going on in that man's heart. I mean, we all have days where different things are going on in our lives, but I just thought, oh, I hope that his fierce doctrinal battles that are waged online haven't, haven't left him with no love for Christ. No love for Christ to even join with the church in singing praises to God. May that that not be true of us. Hear the threat of Christ. He says, repent, do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Christ was ready to completely snuff out this church. 
if there was no repentance. And this is a severe censure. And rightfully, many in this church probably felt crushed. And they might have been tempted to completely say, we need to restart everything. What are we doing? And they might have thought, let's just, let's completely restart every area of our church. But look what comes next. Christ again brings words of affirmation. Look at verse 6. I'm calling this a caution against overcorrection. A caution against overcorrection. He says, yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, the church had something going for itself here. They hated what Christ hated. That's a great thing. Christ referred to the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were an aberrant sect of Christianity who devoted themselves to the teaching of a man named Nicholas. And in the early post-apolic years of church history, some non-inspired writers connected these Nicolaitans in Revelation 2 with one of the, what we might call, proto-deacons of Acts chapter 6. Some of the men, the seven men that would serve as deacons there in Acts chapter 6. There was one man of that group who was named Nicholas, and we're told that he was a proselyte from Antioch. That means at least among that group of Jewish early, uh, we could call them deacons, there was at least one Gentile from Antioch, and his name was Nicholas. And according to church history, there appears to be some connection between that Nicholas and these Nicolaitans, despite there being about 50 years' time difference. And so some have thought that this this Nicholas of Acts chapter 6 had departed from the faith at some point and began to teach strange doctrines. And this sect was the outcome of his teaching. Or it is possible that this aberrant sect of Christianity just simply sought to legitimize their beliefs by finding someone, someone well-known in church history to kind of tab themselves upon. And so they claimed Nicholas as their leader. We don't know. I think the latter is probably more likely. Again, it was about 50 years from Acts 6 to here to when John is writing. But we see here that the Nicolaeans were influencing these early churches. Look, look at their influence upon the church of Pergamum. Just look ahead to verse 15. There, verse 15 Jesus is correcting the church of Pergamum, and he says this. Uh, This is verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold to to the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. See, Jesus associated the the teaching of Nicolaitans here in this verse with two things, with the eating of food sacrificed to idols and to immorality, those two sins. And it's likely that this sect, the Nicolaitans, were also influencing the church of Thyatira. Uh, Look at the rebuke to that church in verse 20. It says there, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So again, notice those two sins. So under the influence there in Thyatira of this woman named Jezebel, a self-professed prophetess, probably symbolically referred to as Jezebel, they were committing the same two sins that the church in Pergamum was. And so they were doing what? They were committing acts of immorality 
and eating food sacrificed to idols. So it seems to me that there was a connection between Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira in regard to this sect of Christianity. And looking again at verse 24, we think that this, the Nicolaitans were likely Gnostics. Now look there at verse, uh, verse 24. It says, But I say this to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Likely the Nicolaitans claim to possess some secret revelation of Satan, the deep things of Satan, which may have led to some form of satanic worship. So it's likely that the Nicolaitans were a Gnostic group. They held the secret teaching, secret knowledge. But we know for certain that they committed licentious acts of immorality and they ate food sacrificed to idols. And we think, well, according to Paul in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, there's nothing inherently sinful with eating food sacrificed to idols. That's very clear. He says idols are nothing. There's only one God, and there's only one God worth worshiping. All other idols are false. And so it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols if your conscience allows it, if you can do so in faith. So we know that somehow the Nicolaitans must have been going beyond that. They were encouraging eating food, sacrificed idols, and somehow engaging in the worship of those idols. And we don't have to wonder what Christ thought about it. He tells us he hated it. And some in Pergamum and Thyatira had succumbed to this heretical sect, but not in Ephesus. You see, they had their doctrinal ducks in a row. They knew better. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They didn't follow them. And so after issuing a severe rebuke, Jesus now encourages them here at this point. In essence saying, look, your doctrine is fine. Don't overcorrect and throw out your doctrine. Which, by the way, I think is often our tendency. It seems that Christians tend to go from, or tend to have a love-hate relationship with doctrine. Uh, We go from loving doctrine and theological precision, which is a good thing, to throwing that out and saying, oh, I just want to love Christ and love people, and I don't care about doctrine anymore. But don't we need both? Uh, He's saying your doctrine is fine. You see, doctrine, as far as it is just a summary of biblical teaching, is a great thing. And we should love doctrine. We should love growing in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his word. Uh, This is actually what Peter calls us to do. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. We're to grow in the knowledge of God, or in other words, to grow in doctrine. But the letter to... The Ephesians teaches us something unique. Uh, we could say that it teaches us that doctrine without devotion is a deadly thing. It's very possible to have the right doctrine, but to be wrong in our hearts, to have left our first love. So I believe we must constantly pursue both together. We must pursue right doctrine, good discernment, but we also must pursue love for Christ, holistic obedience to him, seeking to be pleasing to him in every, areas of, every area of our life. And this leads to just the final portion of the letter. A really, I'm calling it a closing admonition. A closing admonition in verse 7. Jesus says this, he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So just... Notice a couple things about this verse. First, Christ calls the individual to heed this message. He says, 
He who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, if the Spirit of God has so worked in your heart to allow you to spiritually perceive this message, if you can spiritually apprehend and welcome this message, now it's time to take action. Secondly, Christ speaking through the the Holy Spirit addresses these words to all the churches, plural. All the churches. And as one commentator has put this, by the means of this call, the message to a single congregation is extended to all the churches in Asia and through them as representatives to all the churches throughout the world. So you see, there's a, there's a universal character to this invitation. It's valid for every church through the entire church age. Every church needs to heed this message. Third, this invitation is addressed to the one who overcomes. To the one who overcomes. Who are these overcomers? Well, I believe they're genuine believers. It refers to those who have truly tasted of the new birth and who will persevere in faith. You see, it informs us that in the church of Ephesus, there was some truly regenerate Christians there, some who truly knew Christ, but there were likely others whom we might call false converts, some that just thought they were Christians. And those who were truly converted would embrace Christ's call to repentance and will overcome. They will overcome. But I can imagine that others there in Ephesus were undoubtedly offended. Just, I could just hear them saying, Jesus, don't you know how much I've been working for you? Don't you know all the ministry I've done? And in, they might have got offended and left the church. Oftentimes, similar things happen in our church today. You see, I'm sure that some were offended by this message, and that would only have revealed that they didn't truly know Christ. And others, I suppose, would have just had simply no ear to hear. It just would have been in one ear and out the other. They just would have sat there and listened to these words of Jesus and it just would have unaffected them. It wouldn't, have, it wouldn't even have touched their hearts. Fourth, uh, here in this closing admonition, we, receive, we see the, uh, just observe the reward. It's simply this. It's access to the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You will eat of the tree of life. And based upon the references to the tree of life in the book of Genesis, clear in the beginning of our Bibles, and the references in the book of Revelation at the other end of our Bibles, eating of the tree of life represents immortality, eternal life, unending life in the new Jerusalem. So those who overcome, who have true faith, who will persevere despite being rebuked by Jesus, they will overcome, they will inherit eternal life. And so now we must ask ourselves, where does that leave us? And so I think I would be amiss if I just don't ask you, do you have an ear to hear? Can you spiritually perceive this message that the Lord Jesus sent to the church of Ephesus? I believe at the center of this letter is a rebuke. You have left your first love. And so I just have to ask you, do you love Christ? Or like that Ephesian harbor, has your love for Christ been silted in over the years? Has maybe our American lifestyle, our constant busyness crowded out your love for Christ. And so I just ask you, are you seeking to know him, seeking to grow in your relationship with Christ? Are you seeking to know Christ in prayer? Do you seek him earnestly, as the psalmist says we ought to? Do you spend time with him? Do you turn to the word of God to be changed by it, to know Christ, and have your life 
just mended to his? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you spend time with him? Does your love for Christ influence how you love the church and love other children of God? According to 1 John, this is supposed to be the result. It tells us that whoever loves God will love the brethren or love those who are born of him. Furthermore, does your love for Christ compel you to love the lost? I ask you, when's the last time you shared Christ with someone? When's the last time that your just love for Christ overflowed in a, in a desire to share Christ with someone? Uh, maybe are there subtle areas of your life where you've slowly become comfortable with sin? Uh, maybe it's your relationship with your spouse. Maybe your relationship has deteriorated over time. Maybe it's the, the words you speak at work when you're around no Christians. Maybe it's the things you allow yourself to see on TV or in the privacy of your computer screen. I believe that our love for Christ is most tested at the point where we're experiencing the greatest temptation towards sin. That's where our love for, ti- for Christ is tested. Our love for Christ is, is, where, is tested the most where the battle rages the hottest against sin. That's where our love for Christ is tested. Remember Jesus' words. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And I just, I just know that there's nothing that will dampen the flames of love for Christ than unaddressed sin, unconfessed sin, tolerated sin. All sin must be repented of, brought to the feet of our Lord Jesus, and confessed to him. When we become comfortable with sin, our, our relationship with Christ is jeopardized. You see, man will either love Christ or will love something else. We must love something. We must worship something. So if you're here this morning and you're recognizing your love for Christ has non-existent and has never been there, and maybe that's some of you, I, just would, I would just call you to come to Christ, to surrender your life before him, and call out to him to save you. He has died for sinners. So trust him. And, and maybe you're here and you've, you've, you've been in Christ for many years. And maybe this, what this word given to the church in Ephesus is, is apt for you. Maybe your love for Christ has grown cold over the years. And so I would just call you with the very same words that Jesus says here, remember and repent. Remember your initial love for Christ and come back to him. Let us be people that pursue both good doctrine, a right understanding of God's word and a right devotion towards Christ. May every area of our life be pleasing to him. May we be motivated for it out of a desire to, to serve him and please him knowing that one day we'll stand before him and give an account. So with that, let me, let, us, let me lead you in prayer. Please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, these words, uh, they are sharp, Lord. I can only imagine how this church responded to hearing those words. Lord, may this not be true of us. May we be people who love Christ. God, would we be people who understand the word of God? Would we know good doctrine? Would we know theological error, but at the same time, would we love Christ? And would our love for Christ be manifested in in deeds, in in love for other Christians, in love for the lost? I just pray that it would be manifested in obedience in every area of our lives, that there be no area that is out of sync with loving Christ, God. I pray you'd convict us of those areas of our life and that we would change. 
that we would seek help, that we would confess to our brothers and sisters, God, and that we'd be glorifying to you in every area of our lives. God, we want to grow in our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to do everything for him out of a desire to bring him glory, out of a desire to just see him honored in our lives, Lord. So I just thank you for this word. I pray that you can just show us areas that we need to change. Show us areas that we need to come back to loving Christ. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we'll sing a final hymn uh, together, so I'd invite you to take your seats. I believe it's hymn 568.